John 12:9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you'll teach us from this short passage what you have for us and help us to see the evilness of these men who desired to put two innocent men to death, both Christ and Lazarus. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Now it's the time of the Passover. The time of the Passover is coming. These are the last few days in the life of Christ during his earthly ministry. In the previous passage, the Passover was introduced and Mary predicted and Mary introduced the thought that Jesus was going to die and need to be buried and embalmed in terms of his corpse and burial. She alluded to that, referenced that by anointing the feet of Jesus with the expensive ointment, oil, and having done so by wiping that oil with her very own hair, the hair of her head. That's what happened before. Well, this imminent death is also illustrated for us here in verses 9 to 11. They want to put Lazarus to death to stop Christ. They don't want so many people believing in Christ. Their goal is also to put Christ to death. But they want to get to Christ, and before they get to him, they want to get to Lazarus. What do we have here? We have among the great multitude of people, we have among them the Jews, that is, the chief priests, that is, the Sadducees, who were the priests, and the Pharisees, they counsel together, they plot together to do away with both Lazarus and Christ. They want to kill Lazarus so that so many people don't believe in Christ, and then they also want to kill and stop Christ. That's what we have here in verses 9 to 11. Before we actually proceed on verse 9, we need to pick up at verse 8 and just tie up some loose ends from last time, where he says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When he says you do not always have me, he's referencing his imminent death, which Mary is noticing and Mary displays there in front of them all. You won't always have me. Well, verses 9 to 11 show forth that, and the following narrative in the book of John will show forth and explain all that Jesus meant. You will not always have me here. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to display myself with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days, and then I will ascend into heaven. You will not always have me. But the poor you will always have. Remember, we said from last time that Judas Iscariot was being pretentious. He was putting on a show as though he cared for the poor when he didn't really care for the poor. He did not care. But in refuting the, the complaint 
of Judas, he says, the poor you always have with you. In the case of Judas, and many like Judas Iscariot, they will claim to care for the poor, but not actually deal with the poor properly. There will always be the poor, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 15, 11. He made a similar statement that they would always have poor people around. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11. He says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. And in verse 10 he says, You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved. In verse 9 he says, Beware lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying, so forth. So no base thought and no heart that's grieved to give up genuinely, properly to the poor. This is what the scripture teaches. Judas was not doing this. He was pretending to do it. He pretended to have the right theology on the poor, of the poor. He pretended to have it, but he did not actually have it. In fact, that's the same with many today. We must have a correct theology of the poor. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We should do good to all, but especially to those in the local church or among Christians. We must especially take care of them. James says in James 1.27, he teaches us that this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We ought to help widows and orphans in their distress, in their plight, in their difficulties, and keep ourselves unstained by the world. This is the proper perspective of them. 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. 1 John 3, 16 to 18, where John alludes to Deuteronomy 15. 1 John 3, 16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Judas did not truly care about the poor. There are many people claiming to be Christians who do not truly care about the poor, because when they see someone who is genuinely in poverty, they don't help. But they will help those who are flaunting wickedness. They will help those who don't care to repent of sins. They will help those who can trumpet their horn to trumpet the horn of the donor, to make known the name of the donor. 
publicly to millions of people. This is what they do. They don't truly care about the poor. Jesus puts Judas and people like Judas in their place and says, we always have opportunity to help the poor. True Christians help those who are truly in need. Not who are pretending to be in need, but those who are truly in need. True Christians help the truly poor. First among their own people, in their own families, and then in their own local church, and then in terms of true Christians elsewhere, and then the people of the world, the unbelieving people of the world. That is the way we ought to look at it. First our inner circle, and then broadly to the outer circle, to those who are truly poor. That's what Christians are all about. We are all about doing things like that. Well, we have such people, such as Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, in verses 9 to 11. But they're not concerned. The world isn't concerned, but we ought to be concerned about those who are genuine and those who are innocent among Christians specifically and people generally. So, verse 9. At this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, started by the Feast of the Passover. Verse 9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came. So, what happens during this festival? During this annual festival of Passover and unleavened bread, it says there in verse 9 that there is a great multitude. Also in verse 12, on the next day, the great multitude. There's a crowd, but there's a huge crowd, is his point. During the festival, it has been estimated, it has been recorded by a first century historian, Josephus, a Jew, an unbelieving Jew, describing his history, the history of his own people and religion. He says that for the annual feast of Passover, Jews from around the world would assemble, and they were supposed to assemble, like it shows us in Acts chapter 2. They would assemble, and there would be about 2.7 million people. 2.7 million people assembling and gathering on their pilgrimage, annual pilgrimage, for this festival in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem and in the vicinity of Jerusalem, they would come for their temporary lodging in order to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. About 2.7 million people. A contemporary tells us that. And also, if he is exaggerating, even if we have, some scholars think he's exaggerating, I don't think he's exaggerating, but some do think. And even if he were exaggerating and there were a million people, it's still quite a large crowd to accommodate. Quite a large crowd that would observe and who would be talking about the latest news, even if it's a million people. So they learn that Jesus is there and they learn that Lazarus is there and they want to come and see. They want to come and see. It says in verse 9, not for Jesus' sake only, not just to see him and to see him perhaps do another miracle or to hear him teach. We've heard about him from abroad. 
from the various places and countries from which we um, live and have come to see Jesus because the news of him has spread to our own countries hundreds and thousands of miles away. So now we want to come and see him. But they have also heard that this Jesus performed a miracle in raising Lazarus up from the dead. Right? Chapter 11. They've heard about this and this does not happen. There were many, many people who witnessed Lazarus raised from the dead. And now many, many more people want to actually see this Lazarus and talk to the eyewitnesses and see this Lazarus and touch and feel him and ask him about his own experience. Right? So we have ample testimony. We have the testimony of hundreds of thousands of people that's building up right here. To see Lazarus and Christ raised from the dead. That, that is a natural, normal, and good thing, is it not? The people want to see this miracle, the result of the miracle, and the author of the miracle, Christ himself. They want to see this. Now, the action itself is a good thing. It all now depends on their motives. What was their motive? Were they just looking for miracles? And a show? Were they looking for a circus, a carnival, a magic show? Was that what they were looking for? Or were they actually looking to believe? Whatever their motives, and we see in verse 11 that many of them actually did believe in Jesus, which is good. They did do that. Whatever their motives, what they're wanting to do is a good thing. At least they're not trying to put Lazarus to death. At least they're not trying to put Jesus to death. Correct? Their action is a good action. Their action is a good action. But among them, among the people, we have in verse 10, the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Now, it says chief priests. Remember, the priests were... The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priests. They were descendants of the priest Zadok in the time of David and Solomon. They were descendants of him. And the name Sadducee has a resemblance to the name Zadok from the Old Testament. Zadok the priest. And these were the descendants of Aaron. Aaron in the time of Moses. That's who they were. In this period, in their council, in their Sanhedrin, in their eldership, among the people who led the nation to teach them, they had two major groups. They had some laymen known as the Pharisees, and then they had these of the lineage of Aaron, the Sadducees or the priests among them. Those were the two components the laymen who were the Pharisees, the Sadducees who were the priests. Among them, the Pharisees believed in resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. They believed in some true doctrines. The Sadducees, however, did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. Acts 23, 8 and 9 explains that. And even... In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Matthew chapter 22, they, in Matthew 22, 
it says they came to Jesus with a trick question because they denied resurrection. They don't believe in it. So in this council, it's likely that it is the Sadducees or the chief priests who are leading the charge, asking the Pharisees, and at least among themselves, saying, we need to put Lazarus to death because Lazarus is a recent proof of resurrection. Jesus taught resurrection based on Lazarus. So we need to put Lazarus to death. He needs to die because if he doesn't die, everybody's going and seeing him, everybody's going and talking to him, they're asking his sisters, they're asking everybody else who happened to be present there, the many people, and they're believing in Jesus because that's what it says, verse 11. Because on account of him, on account of Lazarus, Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. They can't have it. They don't want that to happen. There's no way that they want so many people believing in resurrection and so many people saying, those Sadducees are false teachers. Those Pharisees are also false teachers because they don't call out the Sadducees the way they need to call them out. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the whole Sanhedrin, is a corrupt body of leadership. We should not listen to their teaching of the Bible anymore. And if that happens with many, many people, what happens to the chief priests? They have nobody to teach, or they have few people to teach. They used to have the whole nation to teach. Now what if the whole nation, as they're afraid of in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, John 12, 19, you see that you are doing, not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Everybody's listening to Christ. Everybody's following him. So they don't want that. They don't want their power and their money, their influence, their reputation to be lost and for it to be transferred to Christ. They don't want that at all. They don't care about truth. They're not concerned about truth, the truth of God's word, and the truth about salvation, the truth about Christ, the truth about anything. They're not concerned about truth. They are concerned. They are preoccupied. They are obsessed. They are idolaters for their own reputation and for their own influence and their own money. That's all they care about. They don't care about the truth. Is it not amazing that Lazarus did not raise his own body up from the dead? Lazarus was not a rapist. Lazarus was not a murderer. Lazarus was not a thief. Lazarus was not anything like that. Lazarus didn't even raise his own body up from the dead. So why put Lazarus to death? He's done nothing. He's just an average man, and Jesus raised him up from the dead. He didn't do anything. Why would they want to put such a man to death? And even Christ. Wasn't Christ the one, Peter said in Acts 10.38, that he went about doing good? Didn't Jesus go about doing good? He raised up Lazarus. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He calmed the Sea of Galilee, right? He healed the 
the, the woman who had been in her misery, in her hemorrhage for 18 long years, or 12 long years, 12 long years, he helped her. He helped all kinds of people, right? He helped people. He didn't do anything either. Jesus did not murder anybody. He did not rape anybody. He didn't do anything like that. He wasn't a thief. Jesus did not worship idols. He didn't do anything. He was doing good. This is what is so amazing, so stunning about this passage, that these two, Lazarus and Christ, were good men. They were innocent men. They were doing good for other people. And even Jesus in verse 8 was teaching them to do good to other people. Help the poor the way you should help the poor. Do these good things. If you understand what's happening here, two innocent men who are objects of the wrath of wicked men. That's what we have here. They didn't commit any sin to deserve this kind of animosity, this kind of anger from the wicked. They did nothing. Well, now that we have seen that this is the case here, will it happen to you and me? Will it happen to you and me that we are minding our own business? We are living a quiet life. We are content people. We don't molest. We don't bother. We don't assault. We don't commit violence. We don't go out into the streets and burn down buildings. We don't find little children and kill them. We don't find helpless women and rape them and murder them. We don't do anything like that. We don't pass out drugs. We don't take drugs. We don't believe in gambling. We don't believe in drunkenness. We preach against all of these things, right? And yet, will people hate us? Will people persecute us, even to death? Yes. Yes, indeed, it will happen. Let's see some examples of this. First is Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Psalm 7 and verse 3. 7, 3. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Here he says that if he has committed injustice, if he has paid evil to his friend, if he has plundered him who without cause was my adversary, if I have done anything like that, then okay, Father, then okay, Lord, let the enemy come and attack me. But the point is, I didn't do any of this. I did not commit injustice. I did not do any evil. I did not steal or plunder 
from other people, innocent people. I didn't do any of this. So Lord, protect me from my enemies. Protect me. But why would David say this? Because it says in the beginning right there, he wrote this psalm, he sang it to the Lord concerning Cush a Benjamite. He had this man whose name is Cush. He was a Benjamite. This Benjamite was in the land of Israel. The Benjamite was attacking David. David didn't do anything wrong against that man. And yet that man is chasing David and wants to kill David. David was living righteously. He was minding his own business. He wasn't in the marketplace causing a stir. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was doing his duty and living his quiet life. And yet this Cush, this Cush the Benjamite, he was attacking David, wrongfully attacking David. Further, Psalm 35. Psalm 35. Practically the whole psalm encompasses this very doctrine. Psalm 35. Let's read about his innocence. First, we'll read about his innocence. Psalm 35, 7. 35, 7. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. Without cause, for no reason, for no good reason, they harmed him. They tried to harm him. Verse 12. They repay me evil for good, verse 12, to the bereavement of my soul. They repay me evil for good. I was doing good to them, and then suddenly they rise up and do evil against me. Why? Why? 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother, I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. When they were sick, what did he do? He put on sackcloth. He fasted. He kept humble with fasting. He kept praying for them. And he went about as though it were his close friend, as though it were his brother, and as though... A son mourns over the loss of his mother. That is, often it's the case that when mothers die, their sons have a particular affinity toward the mother and they have much sorrow at the loss of the dead mother. And he says, I was praying like that. I was that sorrowful for that man who is now turned against me. I was doing all these things. I didn't do any wrong to him, and yet he wronged me. Verse 19. Verse 19. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Neither let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. See there? He was quiet in the land. 
and yet they were wrongfully, without cause, without reason, persecuting him, plotting against him to overthrow and to destroy him. Therefore, he prays here, God, take care of them, punish them, and give them what they deserve. I didn't do anything. They did it against me. As well, we find in Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Psalm 55, the whole psalm also, and the innocence of David. We find that in verses 12 to 15. David's innocence in 12 to 15. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. In this case, David says he used to have sweet fellowship. So he wasn't doing anything wrong to these people. He used to have sweet fellowship, and he actually used to worship with them, he says. Walked in the house of God in the throng. Among the multitudes of people, we used to walk to the house of God to worship together. And we had sweet fellowship together. But what happened? They turned against him. It was, in 13, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. This is what makes it so intolerable, unbearable. He says, I was with you. I ate so much with you. I fellowshiped so much with you. I worshiped so much with you. We shared so many thoughts together. We learned so much together. We did so much together. The things of God together. We did so much of that. And yet, you turn against me? This is what makes it unbearable, as he says in verse 12. It is not an enemy. It's not a known enemy. It's not a known, avowed enemy who did this. If it were that kind of a man, then I could bear it. I could put up with it. But it was somebody who was so close to me that has now become so distant and has now turned as my persecutor. That's what makes it so difficult and so hard. David says that is what happened to him. In John 12, is that in John 12 and John 18, is it not Judas Iscariot? Could Judas Iscariot not fit Psalm 55, Psalm 35, Psalm 7? Of course he could. Judas Iscariot did that against the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one, and this is how it will happen. This is how it will happen to you and me. It happened to Abel, and it will happen until the end of the world to all the faithful. It happened to him and it will happen to us. Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Five ten. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He pronounces a blessing on us because we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We practiced righteousness. Not because we did wicked things, but because we did righteous things. Righteous things are good things. Righteous things are beneficial things, both for us and for others. We were doing good, yet they hated that good so much, they turned against us. They turned against the prophets, and they will turn against us. Just as the prophets were persecuted, we shall be persecuted. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, they were all persecuted, but they preached righteousness. We will also be persecuted. First Peter, First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, 12 to 19. First Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Verse 12, we should not be surprised why should we be surprised? If they persecuted the perfect Christ to death, why won't they persecute us, we who are imperfect and sinful? If they persecuted Lazarus because he was raised from the dead and he didn't do anything for that, all he did was be the gracious recipient of it. That's all he was. They wanted to put him to death. Why won't they put us to death? We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because of our own sin also. We have sins, and sometimes even the righteous things we do are mixed with evil and unrighteousness. And they might see the little bit of wrong that we do and let that little bit of wrong overtake all the good that we did and accuse us of being entirely evil when we're not entirely evil. They will completely ignore all the good. 
So we should not be surprised. It comes upon us for our testing. We need to be tested. We need to be proven. We need to come forth as gold. We need to come forth pure, as silver and gold are refined and tested in fire. We have to have that happen so that we bear good fruit. We must, as we share the sufferings of Christ, verse 13, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing and rejoice with exaltation. We should be thrilled to suffer for the name of Christ. We should say, I'm suffering for Christ, let it come. That's how we should look at it. We should not be anxious. We should not be sullen and vexed like evil men are when troubles come our way, when persecution comes our way. We should rejoice. Then he says, we have a blessing. Verse 14, you are blessed. We are blessed. Why are we blessed? Because we suffer for the name Christian, for the name of Christ. We are blessed because God will take care of us. This gives us assurance that he will, um, with our souls entrusted to him, safely deliver us. He is faithful to us. He's faithful to us, we who do what is right. He'll take care of us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Peter also tells us in 15 that when we suffer, it shouldn't be because we murder, we steal, we do evil, and we are troublesome meddlers. We are not rabble. We're not rioters. We don't go around pillaging and plundering and destroying property. We're not like that. The wicked people of the world are that way, but we are not. Therefore, it's good and right. If we suffer like Christ suffered, it's good and right. And our faithful creator will take care of us. So don't worry. We might also ask, what is it that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the council of the Sanhedrin, what is it that they were in jeopardy of losing? And does the Bible explicitly say it? That's what we said in John 12. We gave some indication of it, but let's illustrate this a bit more to show that they were actually sinfully concerned about their own reputation, their own influence, their own ability to teach the people, and the loss of money, things of that nature. They were concerned about those matters. Our examples come from the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we'll start in chapter 4. We'll go from chapters 4 to 6 with these examples. Chapter 4. What happened in the preceding chapter? Peter and John are entering the temple at the hour of prayer. There's a lame man there begging. Peter and John don't give him money, but they do heal him. And then 
they preach. Peter preaches to the people who assemble to see. So everybody's rejoicing. This man, who was a beggar and lame, now has the ability to walk normally. Peter preaches a sermon calling on them to repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. Did Peter and John do anything wrong? Did they do anything wrong? Did they steal? Did they harm the lame man? Did they kill the lame man? No. Did they take what little bit of money the lame man might have had? Did they strip him of his clothes? Did they do anything like that? Did they take that lame man and parade him naked in the streets of Jerusalem or in the temple complex? Did they do anything that would have been shameful and wrong? They didn't do anything like that. They healed a lame man and they preached the gospel of truth, right? That's all they did. So we pick it up at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So what's going on? What's going on? They see what's happening, and they are disturbed because what they're teaching based on the gospel is resurrection from the dead and faith in Jesus Christ. The Sadducees and the priests, they don't want to believe that. They only want to deny resurrection. So look at verse verse, uh, 8. Verse 8. When Peter is confronted by these authorities, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. What's happening? He's preaching the truth and he's saying, what's going on here? You were the ones who put Jesus Christ to the cross, on the cross and crucified him. God raised him up from the dead. All we did was restore this sick man to good health. That's all we did. And you're against us? Why are you against us? Then we read further in chapter 5. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 17. The gospel is spreading in Jerusalem in chapter 5. Whether there's problems inside the church or outside, the gospel is spreading And 5.17 says, But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. They're filled with jealousy. Why? Because the crowds are following the apostles. And by this point, the, crowd, the number in the crowd is 5,000 people. 5,000 people. That's a lot of people, right? 
they don't want to lose the number of the people that they have been influencing, the people who are following after Christ. Notice also chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. They don't like how Stephen knows what he's talking about, and that Stephen publicly is able to refute these leaders and teachers of the people, publicly put them to shame. But what also is happening? Are they merely against Stephen because of what he's saying? No, it's more than that. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In their very council, the priests, they're losing their numbers in their council. Because now, some of the priests who denied resurrection, who denied the gospel, are now believing in the gospel. And not only the priests, the leadership, but also the crowds of people, the common people, the non-priests, the laymen. It's spreading among them. It says, the number of the disciples continue to increase greatly in Jerusalem, the seat of power, the seat of money, the seat of the reputation of the people. It's going away. It's slipping out of their hands, their hands in power. And also, Acts 13. Acts 13, the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journey, is preaching. He preaches in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. He preaches in the synagogue, and we pick it up after the sermon in verse 42. 13, 42. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming, so forth. Now, after Paul preached this message, it says the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. How about that? 
Paul preaches in the synagogue. The people of the synagogue beg him to come back the next Sabbath and preach the same. When was the last time an audience begged the, the preacher to say the same things or to expand on what he said the first time? That doesn't happen, right? The, work, the Word of God and the Spirit of God were at work among them, right? So they do so. And when it happened, what happens? Jews, God-fearing proselytes, that means Gentiles who were learning the Old Testament and were a part of the Jewish worship, they were among the crowd. So the Jews and the Gentiles, they were following Paul and Barnabas and 44, nearly the whole city in that, where the synagogue was, nearly the whole city comes. Can you imagine? Who had the attention? Who had the respect of the inhabitants of that city? It was the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the Jewish synagogue and whatever other places of influence they had in that city. The Jews, it says, verse 45, when they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and then opposed Paul at that point because of the crowds. This is the way of the wicked. Paul was not doing anything evil. Stephen was not doing anything evil. Peter and John were not doing anything evil. They were preaching the truth and living faithfully, walking with Christ. And yet they had their opponents. We shouldn't be surprised. People will hate us. People will oppose us. They will slander us. They will gossip about us. They will hold us to a standard that they never lived in the past and they don't live now. They are hypocrites. Yet don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be bothered. This is the way of the Christian life. It happened to Christ. It happened to Lazarus. It happened to all the faithful from Abel and it will until the end of the world. He who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.